I'm Rob Dietz. I'm Jason Bradford. And I'm Asher Miller. And welcome to Crazy Town, where the future looks like the past, only shittier. Hey, Asher, I wanted to check in with you about Post Carbon Institute's financial situation. As board president, I feel it's my responsibility, and you're the executive director, so I need to know what kind of plans are in place. Are we going to have to furlough Rob? Uh, what's going on the deal with the situation? I've been looking for an excuse to furlough Rob, honestly. Yeah. But no, can, can um, we just uh, can we could we talk about the health of the organization before we talk about firing me? Is that would that be possible? Look, I, I figured out a solution. Okay, I mean there are a lot okay. of you know nonprofits and businesses, especially small businesses, that are hurting. Yeah, what are you going to do? We, uh, well, because we couldn't get any of this, you know, there's the uh, payroll protection plan thing that the government was offering, but we're not big enough business. To yeah. apply for that. Apparently, you have to be a multinational corporation with lots of little franchises <laughs> in order to right. qualify to get that small business loan. Right. We haven't been able to get that. So I had this other idea. When oil prices went to negative $37 a barrel, like yeah. wow. futures, right? That's yeah. that's a bargain. I quickly went to the, the mayor here in Corvallis uh, oh, and yeah. asked. Biff, because the, nice the, the, yeah, the local pool... Is shut down, right? Nobody can go swimming. People got to no. stay away from each other. It's just sitting there. So Sad. I asked if we could actually rent the pool for a little while, and he said okay. that was fine. So I ordered a couple thousand barrels of oil. Oh, perfect. Negative $37 a barrel. <laughs> oh. so, so you just made you made negative $37,000 right there in that transaction. So what we're, what we're doing is, you know, we're <laughs> having it trucked over here. We're going to just get rid of all the water in the pool. Yeah, and then we're going to fill the pool with with the oil, and then when oil prices go back up, we're going to sell it. So we're wow. going to make money going both ways. I think it's a pretty good. Yeah, we got thirty seven thousand just to take the oil. You're going to sell that for who knows how much. Right. Wait, I, I my job is secure, Jason. Okay. Okay. Good. Hey, Rob. Yeah, we're good. We're let's good. go. Let's let's do this podcast now. You're still on the team. Here we go. This is our shtick now. Is like we got to review the last couple episodes. Right, the ones that were recorded before the pandemic really hit. Right. We did a couple. One was on this sort of eco-fascism, talking about the crazy people that are doing a lot of nutty things, shooting up stores and moss. And we basically made the point that because there aren't sane folks talking about legitimate concerns like population and limits to growth and consumption— Eco-fascists are picking up these topics, and we need to re-legitimize those kind of concerns so that people with, with sort of pro-social intentions can grapple with it. And so I think that, you know, you're seeing signs of folks going out and protesting right now that kind of reminds me, these militiamen protesting, shut-in orders, kind of remind me of what we were talking about. The folks out there, uh, it's kind of scary. But um, we all agreed we'd hit this topic in more detail in a future episode. Anyone? Yeah, else we're going to wanna... be talking about politics in a, in a future episode that we recorded before the pandemic, and I think there's a lot more to say about this. That'd be nice if some of these uh, militia guys out there could get their amendments straightened out, though, wouldn't it? You know, just uh, seem to confuse the Second Amendment with the First Amendment. With just it's ah, bizarre. It is. Well, so I look forward to those conversations coming up on politics. The other episode that we recorded and released was on something that anthropologists call high-energy modernity. There were these two anthropologists, Thomas Love and Cindy Eisenhower, who 
talked about that's the the period we're living through where we're capturing and exploiting way more energy than we ever have at any time in human history. And that's all likely going to end soon. So we we kind of did this riff on what we appreciated, what we like having in this time of high energy modernity, and then the things that, that we're sure not going to miss. And I think what's interesting now in the time of coronavirus is we're we're sort of already exiting high energy living to some degree, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, this is amazing. Like the oil markets, like what we brought up when we were joking around about the Corvallis pool, the Osborne Aquatic Center, great place. It's still full of water, not oil. That was a joke. But um, <laughs> but oil demand is like off like 30%. And so it or something like that. It's crazy, like 30 million barrels a, a day. So that's a lot less oil consumption. And people still are now having a lot of like less travel. They're not traveling as much. They're not planning to travel as much. So that's one of the things that I find is interesting is we're, we're starting to reduce the use of things that we all talked about as maybe kind of this frivolous stuff like cruise ships right? <laughs> um, are a bit on hold right now. And we're getting a taste of what that might be like. So that, that's interesting. It's kind of nice if you can get rid of things that we do think of as maybe that's just something we didn't need to begin with. Cruise ships, that's a good example. But then there's also things that we would like to preserve that are becoming more and more endangered, right? Like uh, high quality medical care. Yeah. Our healthcare systems are really being tested right now. So, yeah, I don't know. Like you said, it's a maybe a little bit of a taste or a, a fire drill or whatever mm-hmm. dress rehearsal for actually exiting high energy modernity. But hopefully there's some lessons to learn. Can I just say, like, okay, so we talked about that. That was a few months ago that we recorded mm-hmm. that conversation. Did either of you guys actually think at that point, yeah, in just a few months, <laughs> nobody's going to be getting on airplanes? <laughs> Right. Nobody's be going on cruise ships. Holy Nobody's shit. Be, yeah. No. <laughs> it's it's, it's incredible. crazy, right? Did you think I, that oil yeah. was going to go to negative $37 a barrel? I mean, we've been studying energy and oil forever, and nobody ever predicted that. I called that one a share. I'm a oh, multi-billionaire now. So, uh, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> hey, you're you're going right. to fund PCI. <laughs> you're going to fund it. <laughs> it's, well, I, it's I, crazy. It's so weird. And I, so the other day I've been, I've been really enjoying this. I keep telling people this. I wake up and I enjoy the sky and I get outside and I see no contrails. I hear no jet traffic. I live in this beautiful place that often is marred by the sound sometimes of high altitude jets and the contrails. This incredible That's them trying sky. to do mind control stuff. The contrail <laughs> yes. thing, right? Yeah, the contrails. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's chemtrails, really. Yeah, yeah. That's van- like there are. I haven't seen almost none. I, I couldn't believe it. So the other night I went on. Let me look for flights between Portland and San Francisco and see how many there are. I found one a day, right? And there weren't even others to other places. Like if you go to LA, you had to go through Salt Lake City or something. So it's true. It's like there's almost no traffic over my head anymore, and it's in some ways it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Yeah, it, it's amazing because things have changed so fast. It's hard to find a way to make sense of it. I don't know. You, you, I almost feel a little bit lost in it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because we've been steeped for a long time in anticipating that the 
the modern world as we've, we've known it wasn't going to be able to continue the way it has, right? So in some ways, I feel like a little bit inoculated to some of this craziness. Right. But even for me, it's, it's really nuts. I didn't anticipate it this way, certainly. And I just really wonder what it's like for people who don't really have, have never processed the possibility of, of something like this happening. Do you know what I mean? Or the life as they've known it changing dramatically. It must be hard. Yeah, that's got to be really hard. In fact, it got me thinking about something that happened to me where I had a change in in my viewpoint. I think I've talked about this with definitely with you guys before, but it has to do with, with my course of study. Uh, you know, when I went to college, I had this double major. I studied economics and I studied environmental science. And, Ouch. You know, when How you, did you reconcile those two things? Well, that was my whole goal, and it was trying to do that. But something pretty weird happened along the way. So I, I was taking these economics classes, and they definitely give you a view of the world, like a, a way to analyze things and interpret things. I mean, everybody knows about supply and demand. You get this idea that people are, quote-unquote, you know, rational utility maximizers. So you got professors steeping you in this stuff as if it's scientific fact, right? By the way, but, that is on my business card. Right. That, right. That's Asher my title. Miller, rational yeah. utility maximizer. Right. The, the pool is now going to be used as an oil reserve. That's it. That's exactly. a rational that, utility. That's, yeah. that's very right. rational. So, so like you, you take those classes and you get that worldview and you start applying it to different things. And, you know, that, that's how people who study that become junk bond traders, which oddly enough, where, where I took economics, it was affiliated with the Wharton School of Business. And they had this hall of fame. It was basically just pictures of oh, alumni no. who were really you know, rich really, people, <laughs> really famous. Yeah, they were all crazy rich, but... I think there were 16 of them. One of them was Michael Milken at the time, who was... Good guy, good guy. Yeah. Uh, in jail at the time, probably, when you well, <laughs> when you were there. Actually, while I was there, they were talking about removing the picture or not removing it because <laughs> uh-huh. he had been indicted for whatever issues he had with this junk bond market. Donald Trump also uh, was one of the guys up on the wall there. So, oh, he's, uh, he's a fellow al- al- uh, alumni? Yeah, yeah. You ever, you ever nice. see him at those alumni get-togethers? No, but actually, with that, with that wall of, uh, I guess it's called a Hall of Fame, but it was just their pictures on a wall, like I said. Somebody stole Trump's while I was there, you know, because <laughs> I think they didn't want him up there. <laughs> Even then, he, he, he was a polarizing figure. And, you know, this is like in the early 90s. Yeah. But anyway, what, what happened is I, I'm getting this econ worldview, and then I go to these environmental science classes where the worldview is basically like, hey... We're entering this era of climate change. We've got too large of a population on the planet consuming too much stuff. And you try to reconcile that with the worldviews you're getting in economics, which are calling for continuous growth. And I don't know. I wasn't smart enough back then to say really, really go and say, okay, this environmental stuff is based on science. This econ stuff is based on Bullshit. theories about how, you know, it's like psychology or how people behave, but, but sort of inaccurate views of how people behave. So uh, what happened then is years later, and I mean, really 10, 15 years later, I found out about ecological economics, which takes as its starting point that the economy is a human system 
that's embedded in the environment and has a lot of physics principles built in, the flows of energy. And it was just like a a relief to get yeah. this this new worldview, some way to interpret an event that actually made sense. And so I, I think that's something that we should be able to do now is yeah. find ways that, that can give people that sense of relief. Like, oh, that's a good way to look at this. I Even understand Even if it's not good on. news, right? Even right. if it's not, oh, everything is going to be hunky-dory and great. A way of understanding what's happening. I mean, that's something we've talked about. It's like living with cognitive dissonance is actually difficult. Your mind is constantly working to keep the certain walls between comprehension in place and creating these new narratives. And, and it's hard and it's a little bit painful and you're on defensive a lot. And so you either have to live with that pain and anxiety of the cognitive dissonance or you have to face the truth. And a lot of people kind of get a sense of relief when they face reality. So good for you, Rob. Yeah, or even just having some way to interpret reality that doesn't throw you for a loop, right? Like yeah. if I'm trying to figure out what's going on in the world with just the world views I got through economics training, I'd, I'd be going crazy because it doesn't fit anymore. Yeah, Rob, I like what you're saying about sort of having the sense of relief and uh, that you've resolved that cognitive dissonance in a sense. And it allows you to sort of a little bit more calm and present when you get information because it's, it's not as dissonant, right? You can interpret it. And yeah. I had a similar sense, and I have that same sense now as I get this information about the world that's happening, right? That where we're like worried now about, oh my gosh, what's happening to the economy and, and energy systems and... I think I, I put it in the context of what's called the adaptive cycle. And I know you all are familiar with this, and we probably mentioned it on the show. But I think it's a good time maybe to remind our listeners and go into some detail of what that means, right? This broader cycle called the adaptive cycle, which is really taken from ecology. Does that sound like uh, you guys familiar yeah, with this, right? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, why don't you, maybe you could just explain it. Okay. So the adaptive cycle is it deals with four main phases, and so they usually talk about first the growth phase. So there's this is a time when resources are pretty abundant, and the system or the organism will rapidly expand. Okay, and then after it reaches some kind of you know grow, it grows for quite a, a while, a certain amount of time, it reaches then it's it's mature or conservation phase where it's not growing, but it's it's very stable. And that can persist for a while. But then that stability ends up becoming disrupted. The system becomes rigid and unable to cope then with with environmental change. And that leads eventually to some kind of breakdown, collapse, or release phase, various terms you can use, where that old system no longer is viable, and all of the parts of that system can fall apart in this release phase. That's the third phase, right? Then they can be captured and reorganized, in a sense, as some new system coalesces. And then that new system can start over again with a growth phase. So those are the four phases of the adaptive cycle, the growth, maturity or conservation, release or collapse, 
And then this sort of reorganization, picking up the pieces again. I'm definitely an examples guy. So I'm wondering if we could take this through and maybe going back to environmental science ecosystems, let's just do the life of the forest through this system. So like, say we got an empty field, like a weed lot that is prime land to become forest. So it it would be the growth phase, right? Where that weed lot stuff's colonizing, seedlings are growing over time, they're they're maturing, animals are are coming in, making homes uh, in this habitat. And all these flows of energy are basically building up the infrastructure, the tree structure of of this budding forest. Right. And then if you think of the conservation phase, let's say, you know, that, that stopped growing, right? It's hit this place where it's kind of found some equilibrium. There may be things that are coming into the system, non-native species or something else that might come in and want to disrupt it, but the system is is stable. Even if new things are introduced, kind of the dominant species in that, in that forest system, you know, are able to continue doing what they're doing for a while, right? Mm-hmm. And that would be the conservation stage. I'm picturing this great big redwood forest, you know, those huge trees and a giant canopy. and Yeah, there's not a lot that can destroy that, right? It seems so immense and it seems timeless in a sense, right? And that structure maintains itself through storms and diseases. And so that, that would be a conservation phase. So you mentioned uh, stable structure and how how the forest can go on for a long time, but then if you think about the most obvious example of it having a big collapse or a release, that would have to be the forest fire. So a lightning strike comes in or uh, or maybe Smokey the Bear didn't get there in time to stop the errant cigarette tossing dude. And uh, the whole the whole giant forest just burns down. So you have this huge collapse, this release of materials and a, a kind of a, <laughs> a very different thing on the day after the fire. Yes, but I want to, again, give you the piece, the perspective, the the ashes to ashes, Rob. <laughs> and so this is part of the natural world. This is part of the adaptive cycle. So from the fire comes the regrowth, the reorganization. Tell that to the freaking koala bear with the singed <laughs> butt, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Right. But yeah, okay, that's it. So you, t- take us through the reorganization. Just, uh, I'm glad I knocked you back into your normal voice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rob. I appreciate yeah. that too. Well, it's just that all of these now parts that, like in this case of the forest fire, all the mineral wealth, the potassium and stuff, and the light now hitting the ground, for example, when uh, when a new seed starts to germinate, it's got light, it's got nutrients, and it's it's not competing with the established mature plants. And so all of a sudden, it's go time. And so this reorganization phase is really quick. And then it leads right back into the growth phase again. Now, the question is, you know, is that the same kind of forest, right? Is it the same dominant species in that forest or are there new species that come? And that's, yeah, it could go either way. Mm-hmm. It depends. And that's what's interesting is that these ecosystems that are old and stable kind of prevent the potentially new ecosystems from being born. And so when you get major shifts in vegetation, it's often because the old, the old system perished, right? And then 
say if the climate's changing, then it's the species are able to migrate in from that are more adapted to the new the new conditions. Yeah, but then it totally matters what flows of energy you have available, like you were saying, sunlight now hitting the ground, or what materials there are, but also what the broader environmental system is. Because, you know, you can think of fire-adapted forests, right? Like Mm -hmm. scrubby pine forests in the warmer regions of North America that are adapted to to burning. But then the Amazon, for example, it's not, not adapted. So if you go and burn that, you probably do get a different system afterward. Well, they're doing that in the Amazon right now on purpose, right? They're burning things down in order to plant other things. Well, it depends a bit, right? Like in the Amazon, if you do it once or spread it out over 500 years, it can tolerate that. And there have been fires in the Amazon, rare. But you can't, you got to let the forest come back quickly, right? If you just, mm-hmm. if you depopulate the forest over vast areas, then these trees can't disperse back in at the diversity and you've ruined the soils. But you're right, like there's a difference potentially between a fire where all those nutrients just sort of go right back to where they were. And let's say a flood and landslide, which kind of removes all those nutrients, and you've got now more depauperate soil that doesn't have those nutrients, then it's going to take a lot longer to generate the kind of structure, the rebuilding phase that is going to be harder to do. So how how that destruction happens, how that release phase happens matters for what kind of reorganization and regrowth you can have. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners love forests and they want to get into like environmental science and understanding yes, the cycles of these things. Do. But but I think we should actually talk about the applicability of this thing. You talked about, Jason, that thinking about the adaptive cycle was really helpful for you even sort of like emotionally, yeah. you know, to kind of withstand a lot of the shocks that we're seeing. And that's because this applies to all kinds of systems, right? You could yeah. talk about businesses that go through these kinds of cycles. You can talk about civilizations like Rome, for example. Mm-hmm. You talk about sports teams. There's like lots of things that this actually really, really applies to. Yeah, and don't don't talk about sports teams. Rob will go off and I don't want to. Yeah, I know. I was just about to begin talking about Tom Brady getting traded Stop and it. stuff. but. But you could also take it down to a simpler level too, right? Like one single life form, for example, like Jason Bradford as a system, you could look at your life through an adaptive cycle lens. Yes. And like you basically look at my hair right now and the color of it and you can, it's an indicator <laughs> yeah, of where I am, unfortunately. Okay. So the adaptive cycle can be applied to all kinds of systems, all sorts of different things but okay let's let's talk about it with respect to the current situation in our society we could be talking globally we could be talking about in the united states but i would like us to go through where are we in the adaptive cycle with regard to the economy and regard to society politics now? yeah i can't say i know i mean honestly i thought go back 10 years a dozen years i thought what we now call the Great Recession, was maybe potentially even this kind of collapse release moment for kind of modern society, American, you know, the American way of, way of life. <laughs> Which you, you remember, know. we now call the mediocre recession right. because we're, we're experiencing something way worse now. Right. Right. It's kind um, of like the little ice age. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember being in that moment and thinking, wow, this could be it. And we talked about, we talked about that recently. And it turned out not to be. 
And it's actually instructive to think about the adaptive cycle in that sense, because what you actually had was a system trying to exert control, trying to maintain the, you know, the conservation phase. And I think it's really important to recognize that, that these systems want to maintain their identity the way it is, right? So you have all right. these incumbent interests. And in our case, you had these political and financial interests that were all, you know, remember the banks were too big to fail, right? Like mm -hmm. they sort of convinced us. And, and it was right that our system was set up in such a way that if we let the banks fail, the whole system was going to fail. But they were so hell-bent on bailing out, basically, the people who benefited so much from the system itself, right? And it, yeah. we've done all kinds of things, gone to all kinds of extremes to maintain that. Because of that, and we've talked about Joseph Tainter's theories about the collapse of com complex societies. They get more and more complex as they hit issues. And we've been doing that in this case. The jury's still out for me, but man, if we are not in that collapse and release phase right now of this system, we're damn close. It's, if it's not this pandemic moment, and, and I think that there's lots of signals that it could be that, potentially, mm -hmm. we know climate change is coming in a big, yeah. big way. There are other crises that are going to be hitting us. So we may be trying to, the system may be trying to conserve itself through this, and there's going to be a, a battle in a sense, right, over right. whether that could, that could be achieved, whether that's what we actually want as a society to conserve what we had, yeah. or to create something new and take all that energy and, and release it into some kind of new reorganization. So it may be that it actually operates in different ways in different parts of the world. Yep. There are communities who've gone through the collapse phase and are weren't even able to reorganize in a lot of ways. We've got indigenous populations, for example, you know, that have been decimated for a long time. This pandemic may, and the fallout from the pandemic may send some societies into that. It, maybe there are others that figure out a way how to hold it together and conserve it. So it may not be happening consistently across the globe and across communities. But the big question is, if we say whether it's this moment or another moment, that it's inevitable that these cycles happen and that we will be coming to a collapse and release phase, is there anything we could do about it? Well, I think it's important, yeah, to think about this not necessarily as a one-off. So when you lose the image of a forest fire, you have this, this image of the whole canopy burns and, the, and it's just like goes to ash. But actually, like in, in a lot of complex systems, if you think of this vast forest, it's like there's patches that burn out or it moves through the understory and a third of the matured trees die, but not all of them. And so it may take time. It may be that the ecosystem shift or the forest shifts over decades or centuries rather than one giant forest fire that kills it all off. And so maybe you know maybe it's important to think of it more like the landscape level as opposed to the like individual forest patch you can put in your head. And wouldn't we prefer that? That would be nice. Yeah, I think if you if you think about that in societal terms, that would be kind of like if we're going through a release, it's not just horrid human suffering and right. it, it's not the road. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a shit show of apocalyptic nightmares, right? It's more like things are changing we're powering down, but maybe we could do that somewhat gracefully. Yeah. Of course, the the part that I think has the chance to to feel like okay, I can use this worldview, this model, and it it gives me some agency. Is that 
the knowledge that even after a collapse, there's a reorganization period coming. And, and so that raises the question of how do we prepare for that? What, what kind of things can we do to have that reorganization be something where we end up with the sustainable, the just society that, you know, that we're all in favor of, and, yeah. you know, rather than the everybody's locked in a, a competition and fighting for, for the resources that are there. Totally. And that's sort of where, where do you put your energy, right? To say, I want to be ready to take whatever resources become available where I am during some sort of release phase and repurpose them in a sane pro-social pro other species and long-term viability of the planet to to like allow complex life to exist way. <laughs> and that's it. That is, I think the question of this time. I think it starts with even just internalizing that that is not only likely it's inevitable, right? Yeah. We can't know the form of it. We talked about sort of a, a, a slower going phased kind of collapse and release Versus like an acute, holy shit, overnight collapse. We can't necessarily know that, but we can really process the fact that these cycles are inevitable on some level. And that means psychologically sort of like coming to terms with that. And then I think it's about, and we've talked about this before, it's about investing our energy then in preparing to to enter into that release phase in a way where the energy gets directed in, in the right ways, where the collapse maybe doesn't operate under like a no quarters principle where everyone's taken out, you know, that we're, we're trying to protect the things that matter the most mm -hmm. and shepherd people and the system through the process and, and protect what's most necessary. The things, the resources that we want to keep our knowledge, our values, other species, all those things. And then putting our energies into modeling the kinds of Way. So if we think about a reorganization like a forest, you know, the, the seeds that get planted, yes, that's you know, right. in the opportune moments are really, really key. So what are the things that we could be doing to plant the right kinds of seeds? When you say putting our energies in, at least the way I'm interpreting it, it's you're talking about people doing things in their lives to get the kind of world they want. But I, I want to also talk about directing the actual sources of energy. We were talking earlier about how we have this oil that basically there's a glut. There's too much production, too little demand right now. And so we're piling up oil. And we know we have to get away from burning oil and get away from burning coal. So the question is, can we direct the excess that we have or what we can safely burn, if any, based on the the climate situation, but can we direct that toward developing the next energy infrastructure, which may not be as energy dense as this one that we have currently, but that gives us a far better chance at sustainability. I think that's a, a huge way that we have to proceed, and that's not going to be easy politically to get that to happen. No, there's going to be a big political fight about where to direct things right now, right? And but I also think I would extend it beyond, you know, the investing of fossil energy to create the new tools to capture sunlight or, you know, environmental flows. There's, that's, that's one way to do it. But I could also think of ways to invest 
energy and resources now to sort of prolong some of the structures we have to ease the decline. So like, for example, if we don't want to burn as much heating oil going forward, maybe we should be insulating like mad. If we want to protect our watersheds, we should maybe be planting a lot of trees. If we want the food system to perform well in a different kind of non, you know, deglobalized energy scarce world with climate change, et cetera, we need to strategically repurpose the food system. And all of those activities require, right, some kind of energy, whether it's transportation energy or manufacturing energy. And can we do it in a, in a mindset that says we're aiming for a civilization that persists past the oil age? <laughs> yeah, those are really important conversations to be having now. I, I was amazed, Jason, that you didn't actually talk about soil there. That's got to be one of our most important investment areas is mm -hmm. making sure that we stop the exploitation of soil where we're scraping away topsoil and, and yeah. over fertilizing and all that. And instead trying to build up its capacity to produce for us year after yeah. year after year. Yeah, I kind of I wrap that within the food system reform idea, yeah. but I could go <laughs> in for hours I, about soil. I, I knew it was there in your head. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, when we're talking about energy, I, I don't want to understate political energy as well. I mean, you guys touched on it a little bit, the political fight over this stuff, that there are people with hands on the levers of the current system that want to maintain the current system. And the dangers of doing that are that we get so brittle and locked in that we can't actually withstand. The, the system can't withstand another fire that hits it. So it's really important to be engaging in this question of where are we putting our resources, our collective resources. We've got collective natural resources. We also have collective human resources and financial resources, right? There's a lots of debate or, you know, things happening right now around trying to direct financial resources to keep the system going right now because we're, the economy shut down. And so we're asking a lot of people to operate both at the very, very kind of local and personal level and then still be players in kind of this global battle that needs to be waged in terms of where are we directing ourselves and our energy. I mean, there's going to be lots of conversations around how to put people back to work. We could be putting people back to work to just try to go right back to getting in, into Disneyland and on cruise ships and going to the movie theater and getting the, you know, the next big truck or whatever. We could be directing them towards soil conservation and regenerative agriculture and trying to figure out basically a way of moving as elegantly through this transition or this release phase, you know, that we're going into. The key thing, though, is I think for a lot of people, they maybe don't recognize the cycle here. They see this all as kind of a continuation of a linear line of progress. We just have different values of what progress is. If we start by recognizing things are going to break down. And there's going to be chaos in that breakdown. And we need to be flexible in how we deal with that. We have to be smart and adept and think in systems as we're dealing with that. Then we could be much more successful in terms of thinking about what the reorganization looks like than if we're just scrambling to try to hold on to a vision that we had previously about how we're supposed to be. Yeah, and the, the messaging around that is interesting. When you started saying people will be clamoring to go back to Disney World or on the cruise ship or even on the Disney cruise ship, right? And then I kind of get to this 
a little bit of a point of exasperation. Like, is that the best we can do here and now? So I think we, we really need to be asking those questions. Hopefully we can get everyone to ask those questions. Jason, you were saying something interesting to me the other day about how this is a sort of a paused time, a time of slowdown. And a lot of people are doing probably more thinking than they're used to doing. And it's a time where you can be introspective and ask, is this the best way that we could be using these resources? Is this the best use of my time? Yeah. I talked about how I appreciated that the sky was clear, right? And there wasn't plane traffic in the sky. And so I would find it a loss if that traffic came back. So that's the ironic thing here, right? I am so happy when I go outside and I've got beautiful wildflowers and a clear sky with clean air. And I'm like, that. all of that is at risk of, of being harmed. So I'm reflecting on this going, what a blessing to not have all this plane traffic. So I don't want to go back to that. Not just because, you know, we have an energy descent and it's a, it's a malinvestment to try to expand airline traffic, which we talked about in previous episodes, but because actually I'm enjoying this quieter existence in a sense where the beauty of nature is so much more apparent now. It almost stands out. So you're saying that you're not missing dancing with a Disney princess <laughs> While you swill whiskey sours or uh, whatever Mai Tais or uh, rum and Cokes. I think we have to be mindful of the people who are not blessed to have that experience that you're having right now. I think, yeah. and there are many people who have been, I guess two things here. There are many people who have been promised but have never received the benefits of this, the system that, that we've been existing in. You think about people whose aspirations, they've been told their aspirations should be getting a better job, getting more income, being able to buy more things, being able to travel. You talked about that when we did our tourism episode and how that's actually still a a minority of the world's ever been on an airplane. Do you know what I mean? So there are people who've never been able to benefit from that and many people who have actually been victims of of that system. And these times are hitting those people, I think, particularly hard. I think for those of us who benefited, and we're, we're really fortunate, the three of us in, in our current circumstances, is to make sure that that we don't go back to the things that were patently unsustainable and putting us at risk and, and other species at risk uh, and, and actually really exploiting a lot of people on this planet. We don't go back to that, but we offer people something, a vision for that future of what that reorganization phase looks like. You know what I mean? That is a positive and hopeful vision of the future. Then maybe it's not predicated on consuming more shit, you know, but it's <laughs> it's predicated on the things that you're enjoying right now. That we just need yeah. to make sure that those are those are made available to everybody. I, I agree. Yeah, and I think we we try to hit on that all the time. You can't just aim for sustainability. You have to aim for justice as well. And we've talked about this over and over, shared sacrifice and the need to all be in it together. And, you know, it's not like any of this is easy, right? But the best you can do is to start trying to incorporate those those values. And I think the worldview that 
that we've talked about here, this adaptive cycle is a really good way to view it and then start figuring out how do you turn toward, if we're going to go through a collapse, if we're going to have an opportunity to reorganization, how do we try to direct that in a way that is likely to bring us a a moment of justice and and a chance for sustainability? Hey, I think that is a great way to to transition here at a quarantine corner because we're talking about what to do to like help with the reorganization phase, right? And I feel like I'm in the middle of that right now, right? The food system is kind of like cratering in a sense. There's grocery store shelves or or parts of them are empty and there's processing plants shutting down and farmers not knowing where to take crops and there's bread lines. It's crazy right now. And what are we going to do about this? I'm a little nervous, but what I'm doing is I'm upping my farming game. And I started a CSA program with a couple other farms. So it's a share system. So people buy food for the year and we're going to provide them for food for a year, the three farms. So I think this is something that could expand dramatically. And it seems like other farms that are doing this in the area are having huge responses are selling out. And I, for example, know somebody who lost all their restaurant accounts. They sell lamb. They lost all their restaurant accounts, which was half their business. And they've Mm. made it all up in direct sales to people. So there is sort of a sense of like this, like I say, there's a good example of kind of reorganization and, and kind of growth of the new out of it. So that's my quarantine corner for the week. You're making me feel lazy, dude. Like starting up <laughs> yeah. a whole farm program. And a, yeah. Yeah. I'm just sitting well, on my ass. Yeah. That, that's how I think of you, Asher. You're the laziest guy I know. Right. Right. <laughs> well, uh, let me tag on the end of your quarantine corner with mine, Jason, because uh, it's, it's totally related. So... You know, I've had this uh, resilience worldview for a while and kind of had a sense that maybe we might be entering that that release phase in the economy. So I feel really lucky. I, from previous work that I had been doing, I, I had a retirement account and I liquidated it. You know, it's been a few years back now to go in with Jason on this farm and uh, so instead of uh, me having any money when I retire, now I can go live off of Jason's good work down there on the farm, be eating lambs. Yeah. Sleeping with the lambs. Yeah. Land rich and cash poor, baby. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's <laughs> it, it's probably not going to be pretty, but um, but yeah, no, I, I really do feel thankful that I could be part of a, a farm. And I, I love what you're doing with it, Jason, with the CSA and just trying to make a... Uh, full season diet available to to the local community. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we talked about wanting to do there. So it's uh, it's brilliant, and and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, my quarantine corner is nowhere near as inspirational or <laughs> aspirational as you guys are talking about. I I've been thinking um, this week about just the movement of cars and people. And do you guys remember last season we did the whole thing about car culture and we talked a little about the history of the car and how it sort of took over the road. Yeah. The road used to be for, for people. People used to just walk down the middle of the street and there's a huge reaction, you know, when cars showed up. I mean, one, people are just running people over <laughs> left and right because right. they didn't know what the hell they were doing. But, you know, there's like this huge march. I think it was in Chicago of kids who were like, we want our streets yeah, back. Yeah, want to play stickball. Um, I'm now set up in 
in my bedroom. I we have our desk and we moved it into into the bedroom so I could kind of work with the door closed and and try to focus. And I have this view out my window of this intersection, you know, in my neighborhood, which is very quiet. It's like it's actually a no stop sign intersection. Cars will come down one hill and then turn quickly to the, the other street and oftentimes don't stop. And our neighbors used to be really concerned about kids playing in the neighborhood because they were worried about that. Well, now their kids just own in the street, That's you know, great. like including those neighbors, their kids, you know, they're like bands of kids on their bicycles and on their their scooters and all this stuff. It's like that Simpsons episode. Kind of, yeah. But there's only an occasional car that comes by. When they do, they have to stop and wait for all these kids. And and I'm just imagining, I mean, you know, Jason, you talked to, uh, with Lament about when the when the planes start flying overhead again, you know, yeah. how, how bummed out you, you might be. I feel the same way. But these kids, man, I hope that they're, they're going to be empowered. They'll have enough time kind of owning this, these streets that – Maybe the power will be back in the hands of the pedestrians, you know, and the, and the cyclists. I've already sent your kids some tax strips to throw down for when the car traffic returns. So they'll be just <laughs> popping tires left and right. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, and when the cops come knocking on my door, I'll, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll let them know where they came from, well, Rob. So can we uh, – maybe we should close out with, uh, with a little bit of uh, sad news about your, your lowering of traffic. That means that of our three listeners to this podcast – Two of them have given it up because they got no more commute to listen to us uh, make our silly jokes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's why we need a fourth listener. Please spread the word, people. Yeah, thanks a lot. We need just one more. All right.